0: Trevin G. Hatch is the Ancient Scripture, Religion, and Philosophy Specialist in the Harold V. Lee Library at Brigham Young University. Trevin earned a BA in History at Brigham Young University, an MA in Jewish Studies with an emphasis in rabbinic literature at Baltimore Hebrew University, Towson University, an MLIS Master of Library and Information Science, with an emphasis in academic libraries at the University of Kentucky, a PhD in Sociology of Religion at Louisiana State University, where he wrote his dissertation on Jewish families, and is currently a doctoral student, because he can't stand not taking classes, (laughs) in Jewish studies with an emphasis in Bible and early Judaism at the Spertus, Spertus. Spertus. Spertus Institute of Jewish Studies in Chicago. He also studied at two universities in Israel, uh, Hebrew University of Jerusalem and the University of the Holy Land. Unofficially, the first time I met Trevon, I knew he loved Judaism and Jews and Israel. For one thing, he had an entire wall with a photographic uh, image of Jerusalem. So it was kind of easy to figure this out. One of my favorite anecdotes about him was he had a student that said, why are you so interested in Jews? And he said, well, they wrote the Hebrew Scriptures, they wrote the New Testament,
1: they wrote the of Mormon,
0: and I could go on. So, he's a master of the obvious, but plain spoken. One thing, I, I've known Truman for a little while, and one thing I really admire him, is he is someone who really pushes himself and his students to think deeply and to appreciate the world around them and religious things in a, in a very close manner. Found way. And I do know you will not be disappointed tonight to have Aaron, Trouty, Dr. Trevor
1: Okay, guys, this is a, a, a real special treat for me to come speak to you. Thank you for, it, for inviting me. Uh, I really love this atmosphere, it brings back all the memories when I was at, uh, in Israel and in B- Baltimore and when I go to the Spurtis Institute. I have a lot of Jewish friends, but I'm from Utah, so I didn't have a lot of Jewish friends growing up. I'm not Jewish myself, and so my connection to Judaism is not a, a, lived, a living connection or a practice connection, it's an intellectual connection to Judaism and um, you know, the world of the rabbis and the New Testament. Period. so hopefully uh, one, one thing I'll say about this before I begin whenever I talk to a new group I've got a new audience whether it's my students or education week or in Israel when I'm leading tours I preface whatever I'm gonna say if you like the more devotional side I hope you'll still like this it's not that I'm non-devotional but I I really like uh, as, as Brad said I like to challenge my audience and really give you something you haven't thought about and so usually 80 to 90 percent of what i say is new to people which is challenging with uh, with any audience because i don't know uh, where everybody is with their knowledge base so hopefully uh, this will be rewarding to you Uh, the title as you can see it is the talmudic rabbi jesus making sense of the striking similarities between jesus and the rabbis I, I've never given this presentation before. I've, I've given dozens upon dozens of other types of presentations like this, but I've cobbled together uh, just for this group, this topic, and hopefully I can do justice to it. We'll go through, and if I, when I reach a certain time, I'll skip. Whatever's here, I'll just skip it and I'll go to the end. I've got a lot of material here. It's going to be too long for 45 or 50 minutes, um, but if you want these slides, I can email them to you if you want. But first, uh, here's a diagram of um, what i call him, con- calling conceptualizing Jesus' Jewishness. This is just very simple. Uh, we've got the Hebrew scriptures that influenced the New Testament writers and how uh, they wrote about Jesus, how they presented Jesus. We also have early Jewish literature, a lot of that literature at the time of Jesus, a lot of the apocryphal stuff, the pseudepigraphical texts, that uh, we, we learn a lot from those about Jesus' world. Uh, the temple uh, aristocracy, uh, Jewish law a lot of these debates they're having but then we get rabbinic literature and this uh, Obviously doesn't influence the heat the New Testament writers because this literature came after But uh, what you'll see today is that I think studying these two bodies of literature If we look at those the the rabbinic literature and the New Testament We can see many similarities between Jesus and the sages and so I'll give you sort of a drive-by survey of what I'm talking about And then we'll look at the implications and uh, some of the conclusions about what we learn about these two bodies of traditions that were circulating being preserved in the same centuries um, after Jesus died. So here's a a few questions for us. Because there are many striking similarities, some of these questions are how do we make sense of these similarities? Are Are these coincidences? Do they draw from the same well of Jewish cultural traditions? Did Jesus' stories influence the composition of later rabbinic stories? Or did the rabbinic stories predate Jesus, at least a lot of them, some of them, and then influence the authors of the Gospels? First, uh, before we get into some of these examples, I wanna talk a little bit about Jesus as a local hero. Uh, Scholars have, have used this this model to study Jesus and how um, his the traditions about him would have been preserved. So the local heroes are known in any uh, society for being extraordinary figures and one thing that uh, with what we know about local heroes is that their traditions are preserved by the by the people in that geographic region. What we know is that in the New Testament, Jesus himself mentions local heroes. Anybody want to throw out a few names and see if we can identify some? John the Baptist is one. Isaiah, possibly, um, I don't think he's from the area, but he certainly references some of the Hebrew prophets, yeah? Moses, not from the area, but he does reference them. Looking for two other individuals, well, three other individuals. We have John the Baptist, Elijah, I mean, Elijah and Elisha and uh, Jonah. So here's, here's Jesus. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. Ask for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign of the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. The people of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah. And see something greater than Jonah is here now why do I say that Jonah is a local hero and this is why Jesus mentioned him well we know that got heifer is uh, just only five miles from Nazareth so here's this map right here and if this laser works I don't know if you can see it but it's uh, very close uh, so right here in Lower Galilee we have Jonah We also have Elijah and Elisha ministering in this very region. Here's Mount Carmel. We have the northern part, the tribes of Ephraim, and and some other tribes where Elijah and Elisha were ministering. And also Jonah. So, so far removed from Jonah, people are still saying, yeah, this is our guy. This is our prophet. He's from here. So if Jesus is talking to people, and if he happened to be in this area, he's probably pointing to toward God Heifer, using that motif to influence his audience. If he was somewhere else he probably would have used a different name. What's interesting about these local heroes is that Jews at the time in this region at this time believed that heroes in the past influenced current local heroes. So what do we mean by, what do we mean by this? There's some sort of incarnation. It's kind of a strange idea to us but the idea was that if there's somebody like Jesus, or some uh, some miracle worker or teacher, they must be acting in the spirit of Elijah, or in the spirit of John the Baptist. How do we know this? Well, because uh, it's mentioned in the New Testament. Right here we at uh, Caesarea Philippi, who do people say that I, the son of man is? And they said, some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah. And do you remember what Herod Antipas thought? Who Jesus was? John the Baptist. It says, now Herod the ruler heard all, all that had taken place and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared. So who is this guy? He must be, is he Elijah? Is he John the Baptist? And so this is why I'm, I'm calling Jesus a local hero in Galilee. As a, and as a local hero, his uh, traditions about him would have been preserved in this area decades and a few centuries after he died. Now the question I ask is, would Galilean Jews have preserved Jesus' traditions, even in the Talmud? I think the answer is yes. But there's a reason why that uh, what was preserved was spun negatively, and it's kind of obvious of why that happened. We'll talk a little bit more about that. And he eventually, uh, we'll mention a little bit here, eventually, obviously, transcended this local hero status when Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire. Um, And then then the rest is history. There's a a long uh, controversy and conflict between these two groups. But also, not only with Jesus, there are some other rabbis who are local heroes, and I'll introduce you to some of them. One trip that I would love to go on when I travel to Israel would be to go to all the tombs, of the rabbis, all the monuments and tombs. They're everywhere. They pepper the landscape all over the Galilee. Uh, There's entire websites that'll show every single one of them and where they are. I'll show you a few pictures. Okay, here's a few. There's Rabbi Abba Hilkiah and uh, Haneba. These two rabbis ministered during Jesus's childhood, at least according to the tradition, in Galilee. Both were known for working nature miracles, Controlling controlling the uh, nature. Both were very humble men who avoided the luxuries. Uh, the stories, I think I've got them on here, is that Abba labored in the fields, but he was shy, and when people wanted to come by and praise him, he would, um, he would hide, and he would run away. He didn't want any praise. Same thing with uh, Hanina. He would hide in the bathroom or in the lavatory so that when people would come and hear about his miracles, they would come and he would hide. He says, I don't want uh, any of that. Praise. A few things to note is that some of the sages approached Rabbi Abba to pray for rain, which the story goes that he went to his upper room, prayed, clouds soon came and dropped rain. They all the rabbis also sent little children to to Rabbi Hanina, and they would take hold of the hem of his garment and ask for a miracle, most of the time uh, for rain. And this is their this is their tomb this is just uh, north of the Galilee by I don't know 10 miles or so it's up by a if anybody's been over there uh, next time I go we're gonna take the bus by here and and uh, visit uh, the rabbis uh, there's another one Rabbi Henina Bendoza anybody heard of Rabbi Henina Bendoza I love this guy here's, a, here's another man who was a, a Galilean miracle worker and he lived just 10 miles from Nazareth. Both Jesus and Rabbi Hanina uh, were called in the literature called "My Son from God," from the bat Kol, the voice, you know, the the, the voice in heaven, uh, bat kol. So uh, with Rabbi Hanina, God said, um, "Proclaim that the whole world is nourished by the good deeds of My Son Hanina." And we also know what he calls Jesus. But both in his baptism and his transfiguration, calls him My Son. Okay, let me give you a few examples of how they're similar, and we'll talk about the implications of this in, in a little bit. But here's a parable about Hanina Bendoza. Once the son of Rabbi Gamliel fell ill, the teacher of Paul. His son fell ill. He sent two scholars to Rabbi Hanina Bendoza to ask him to pray for him. When he saw them, he went to an the, uh, the upper chamber and prayed for him. When he came down, he said to them, Go, the fever has left him. They sat down and made a note of the exact moment. When he came to Rabbi Gamliel, he said to him, you have not been a moment too soon or too late. But so it happened that at that very moment, the fever left him. On another occasion, it happened that Rabbi Hanina Bendoza went to study Torah with Rabbi uh, Yonatan Ben Zakai, or uh, Yohanan Ben Zakai, and the son of Rabbi Zakai fell ill. He said to him, Hanina, pray for him that he may live. He put his head between his knees and prayed for him and he lived. So you're already probably seeing some of the similarities with Jesus, where those two men came to him and asked from the centurion. Um, the centurion's son is ill, and it's a very similar story. Now, why do I highlight he put his head between his knees? Who else did that in the Hebrew Scriptures? Elijah. Elijah did that, and again, we're talking about how people in this, um, there's this connection that the rabbis made about the, between Rabbi Kenina Bendoza and Elijah. And here, uh, he is acting out the same way Elijah acted out. And then we get that similarity with Jesus in the New Testament, that the, the, the authors are making the connection between Jesus, and mo- mainly Elisha, but sometimes Jesus and Elijah, certainly John the Baptist and Elijah. Um, and here's here's John 4. Go, your son will live and at that hour the fever left him okay here's this other strange story when we read the new testament what in the world are these about he took a blind man and when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him he saw everything clearly he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes saying to him go wash in the pool of salome which means sent then he went and washed and came back able to see it's really odd, isn't it? When we read this in Gospel Doctrine, we think he's you know, spitting in the mud and rubbing his saliva uh, on his eyes. Well, it turns out that there's a story of Rabbi Hanina Bendoza, and there's two men who approach him and say, Rabbi, there's somebody else, not you, who's a healer, but there's another healer who we found, and he claims that he can heal. And Rabbi uh, Hanina says, how do you know he can heal? And they said, because he... Is a firstborn son and he heals people's eyes and then Rabbi Hanina said well it is a learned tradition that the saliva of a father's firstborn heals this ailment so what's interesting is probably that Jesus knows of this tradition that people follow this tradition and so he's probably saying okay um, I'm gonna use I'm gonna speak in their language and use their uh, cultural um, you know their sentiments to demonstrate that I am a firstborn of the Father. So he's using their uh, customs, and which is his custom, customs too. But I think, I think uh, Christ did that. He watches and looks at what people will speak to them, and he, he uses that. Part of that story is similar to Jesus, where two men come to him, and they say, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But jesus said to him said said to him do not stop him for whoever is not against you is for you so we do know that there are other healers in galilee during this time whether he's talking about hanina or somebody else that there are people that the lord uses to to bless bless that society and that culture Um, jesus is one of them rabbi hanina and and there's others okay so let me now since i've introduced you to a few of these people Let's do sort of a drive-by. I'll move quickly, and if we'll see how much we can get uh, before I want to have uh, a discussion about what this all means for our, our understanding of Judaism and Christianity in antiquity and their relationship. So the two great commandments, we know these. In Matthew, it's teacher. Which commandment is the law in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I highlighted that so we can remember remember that. And then in Mark, it's a little bit different, but a scribe said to him, you are right, teacher, you have truly said to love one's neighbor as oneself. This is much more important than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. What's interesting is where does this come from? It comes from the Hebrew Bible, for Hebrew, Hebrew scriptures. We like to think that, I don't know if we like to think, this—is we, we just think this way, that Jesus, this originated all with Jesus. A lot of his famous teachings that made him who we know today, uh, Jesus is on the top 10 list of every philosophers, the most important philosophers of all time. He's always there right at the top. But a lot of this he just he took from his scriptures. He didn't just make it up. He took, takes from uh, Deuteronomy 6, 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Leviticus, and he combines it with Leviticus 19, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But we have other, these aren't necessarily, not all of these are the rabbis, but we have Testament of Issachar, chapter 5, uh, Love the Lord and your neighbor. Testament of Dan, Love the Lord and love one another with a true heart. We have Jubilees, this is all before Jesus. Be loving to your brothers as a man loves himself, and loving each other as themselves. And now we get Rabbi Kiva. You shall love your neighbor, and this is the great rule in the Torah. So Jesus is using what people already know, but he's emphasizing it. Sometimes he teaches it in a very provocative way, which makes people think, wow, this is amazing, and it says so, that they go away amazed. But it's not so radical that we get the idea that he's pushing uh, against and challenging everything that Jews would hold sacred, right? He's, he's working within his Jewish um, the milieu. And I'm speaking to the choir, and you guys know this. Okay, here's the golden rule. In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. Here's Rabbi Hillel what is hateful to you do not do to your neighbor this is the whole torah while the rest is commentary thereof go and go and learn it we also have rabbi eliezer let the respect owing to your fellow be as precious to you as the respect owing to yourself rabbi yossi let the fellow man's money be as precious to you as your own okay now i want to spend a little bit of time with with this how would we how do we interpret this in our meetings typically Okay, and that's good. That's uh, President Nelson and others have, have started that way. Okay, so a lot of these are are, are good thoughts. The problem I have with uh, how we typically use it, I think this is scripture mastery, isn't it? Isn't this uh, scripture mastery? What we do is we proof text, which means we take a verse, we divorce it from its context, we put it over here by itself, and then we develop a theology around it, and then teach it to our youth and to ourselves. The problem is I have, there's a word here that says, therefore, I highlighted it. And I always teach my students that when you see the word therefore, ask yourself the question, uh, what's the therefore therefore? (laughs) When you see the word therefore, or thus, in English and in every other language, that word says, screams out, look at the verses before it. Hence the, the word therefore. So let's look at the verses before it and show us what we need to be perfect in. I don't like this interpretation of a holistic perfection. Swing for the fence, even though you're not going to get it. This sort of language. Uh, It's not necessarily a bad uh, interpretation, especially with our theology of becoming like God. But what I think is happening is that we're taking an originally selfless commandment, and when we divorce it from its context we've turned it into a selfish commandment well it's all about okay i've got my list and my checklist and am i thinking the right thoughts and doing the right thing i'm reading my scriptures and i'm doing all this stuff so here's the here's the context you have heard it it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy but i say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven right you'll be like him For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet uh, only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Ah, see, so what he's saying is that you have to be be perfect in what? In love. And I think that is attainable. You, You can be perfect in how you treat other people. Right, I mean, that's perfectly attainable. I don't think that's uh, a problem. I don't think that's hard to say. You know, every time I encounter my enemy or anybody else, I'm going to be nice. I'm going to show genuine charity and love. Um, you know, he's saying that anybody can just, I mean, any gangster can love those who love them back. Right? But to, to love your enemies, even, that will make you uh, become more like uh, your father in heaven. Now, we're comparing Jesus to the rabbis. The rabbis knew the the context because here's Rabbi Abbasal. Be like him, the Almighty, be thou compassionate and merciful, as he is compassionate and merciful. What's interesting is in in Luke, the the parallel to Matthew is the same as Rabbi Abbasal. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. If we just knew this, and we teach our children this, it would, uh, again, not that our theology of becoming like God is a problem but I think we've taken Jesus' most important teaching and divorced it from his context that, that he gave us. Okay, I'll give you a few examples. I can't go through all these, but I just want to give you an idea of how uh, Jesus is like the rabbis. A few, few more examples. So here is uh, heavy burdens. Come to me, all you that are weary and, uh, and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's Rabbi Nachnya ben Hakanah. Whoever receives upon himself or herself the yoke of Torah will be removed from him or her, but whoever breaks away from himself or herself the yoke of Torah will be burdened. There's, and this is his tomb here in, in the Galilee region. Here is Rabbi Kiva, and that's this is his uh, tomb or monument. The, and the Sea of Galilee, Lake Tiberias is in the background. So it's right there on the western side, western uh, shore of the Galilee, in Jesus's stomping grounds. Well, not his stomping grounds. That's uh, Nazareth, but where he, where his ministry. So Jesus, are uh, you are my friends if you do what I command you? I do not call you servants any longer because the servants, the servant does not know what the master is doing. Here's Rabbi Kiva. You are called both sons and servants. When you carry out the desires of the omnipresent, you are called sons. And when you do not carry out the desires of the omnipresent, you are called servants. Here's one of my favorites. This is, uh, okay, why do you see the spec? By the way, this is NRSV. Hopefully that doesn't offend anybody. I use the KJV in church. All other times, I use the NRSV. Even my BYU classes, Education Week, uh, it's the best translation. I think the most literal translation to get at the the meaning so this is why I use it why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye but do not notice the log in your own eye you hypocrite first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye okay before I show you the parallel this is really funny I think the gospel writers and or Jesus had a, a, a very good sense of humor can you imagine him? In fact, I, if he's given this speech, I imagine people are kind of chuckling because you can get this image where he's saying, you know, you, they got the speck in his eye, but he doesn't notice the tree trunk sticking out of this guy's eye. You can imagine a guy walking around with a tree trunk sticking out of his eye. Uh, he's, I think he's a lot more, uh, he's got a good sense of humor if you notice some of these things in his uh, his teachings. But here is probably Tarfan, second century. Is there anyone in this generation who accepts reproof? For if one says to him, remove the mote from your eye, he would answer, remove the beam from your eyes. Okay, I'll give you this example. Let's see. Yeah. Take care that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you, in heaven their angels uh, continually see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine on the mountains and go in search of the one? That want astray. and if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never want astray stray. So just to highlight a few things. He's talking about little children originally, and then he gives the leave the the many and go after the one. Well, here is Rabbi Udan. I um, I forget what century, but it's late. But here's what he says. That the, this is where the rabbis are sitting around trying to figure, writing commentary and and uh, on Genesis 39 which says, the Lord was with Joseph. And so then they wondered, was God with Joseph and not the other, not his brothers? And then Rabbi Udan answered the question with a parable. The matter may be compared to the case of a man who had 12 cows carrying wine in the, in the drove before him. One of the cows went into a Gentile store. The man left the 11 cows and followed this one to retrieve it. People said to him, why are you leaving the 11 and following this one? He answered that the 11 are together and safe in, a, in the public domain. But this one is a child, and he is on his own. Therefore, his master was with him. Comparing that to, to Joseph's patriarch. Okay, I could go on and on. Here's the kingdom of heaven and the banquet. It's very similar. Um, there's another, other parables. Kingdom of heaven and the banquet. Here's the kingdom of heaven and hired laborers. i would read all this, but we don't have time. And I cut a bunch of stuff out also. The house on a solid foundation. Both of these uh, Jewish teachers are using the the foundations of a rock. And when the the floods come and the rains come, those who have a foundation, a solid foundation, will be better off. Humility. uh, For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Here's uh, the rabbis. Him who humbles himself, the Holy One raises up, and him who exalts himself, the Holy One humbles. From him who seeks greatness, greatness flees. But him who flees from greatness, greatness follows. We've got another similar idea predating Jesus. Also, studying Torah, the classic debate, studying Torah or good deeds, which is the best, which is the most uh, preferred. And we've got Rabbi Huna, Rabbi Elisha Ben Abuya. These people say we need to, to live, to study and do. And here's Jesus. Same thing. Uh, notice, I'll just mention quick that uh, here's a rabbinic. This is a rabbinic style, the fashion, of you teach a principle and then you say this is like, and then you give the parable. And so notice here that Jesus does this. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man. And then he continues, just like the rabbis, they do this all over the place. And then we all know the, we all know the parable. Like I said, I can send you all those if you want those. Um, so you can read them closer but i do want to talk a little bit uh about these I, I put this up at the first so let's reread them how do we make sense of these similarities are they are they coincidences do they draw from the same well of cultural traditions or are these bodies of literature borrowing or appropriating from from each other so when we answer this then this gets a little bit more academic but i think it's important uh, to walk through the evidence to try to see what the rabbis are doing and what this tells us about Jesus and their relationship. So, we should first note that many synagogues and churches were built right next to each other all the way up through the first three or four centuries. And we do know that many Christians attended the synagogue services. Uh, and this is, we have records all the way up to, into the fourth and fifth centuries. So if these synagogues and churches are built next to each other and Jews and Christians are in close proximity, then these traditions will be shared with each other. And I think Christians in, were, were greatly influenced by rabbinic traditions, but also Jews were influenced by the Jesus traditions. What I, what I think is also happening is that the Jesus traditions could have been political, what I'm calling here, political and theological footballs right so Jews and Judaism and Christianity which is developing their own identities in relation to each other are using certain traditions as politically and I'll show you what this uh, what this looks like uh, and the question I, I raise here did the rabbis appropriate and adapt and adapt the Jesus traditions to counter Christian influences I think the answer is yes what were they doing the question here is what were the rabbis doing during these centuries, the early centuries, while Christianity was spreading throughout the Roman Empire. What were they engaged in, the big project, fourth and fifth centuries? Talmud, producing Talmud, yeah, right. And so we would expect something to be in there that's bothering them about Christianity. Okay, so Jesus appears multiple times, mostly uh, negatively. And here's an example. This is the tosefta This is an early rabbinic text. Uh, it's right during the time of the Mishnah, late uh, late second, early third century. Rabbi uh, Eliezer ben Dama was. Uh, the story goes was bitten by a snake, and another sage attempted to heal him in the name of Jesus. Rabbi Ishmael stepped in and said to Eliezer, "You cannot. You are not permitted to accept a healing from Jesus." So he's uh, there. They're already, what we learn from this and other stories, is that number one, the rabbis knew about Jesus. But number two, by at least even the second century, some rabbis were already seeing Jesus and Christians as opponents. Right? There was already that relationship. Oh, and I just put this here, a hypothetical, you know, that we can hear the rabbis saying in the text, no, it wasn't your Galilean miracle worker, Jesus, who said this or said that. It was our Rabbi Hillel who really said that. And I showed you some of those uh, similarities. Uh, or it wasn't Rabbi Hanina Bendoza. It wasn't Jesus that, that did that miracle. It was Hanina Bendoza. So this is what I'm seeing and hearing, so to speak, in the text. So here, I'll give you two examples. First is the baby Messiah motif, right? The baby Messiah and his mother. What, what do we see in the Jewish literature about a baby Messiah with his mother and the baby grows up and becomes uh, is killed and humiliated by his enemies? we almost see nothing. There's a few things, Isaiah, but that's Hebrew scriptures. Uh, when we get into early Jewish literature, you almost see nothing of this sort. What happens is in the later centuries, when Christianity starts to spread, all of a sudden the rabbis are telling a similar story. And here is, this is the Jerusalem Talmud, 4th, 5th century. And the story, as they say here, seems to be a parody. Against they tell the story but they change it so it tries so it makes somebody like Jesus look foolish, or or at least the story. I won't tell you the story but you'll get an idea from uh, Dr. Peter Schaefer at Princeton. He just retired. Um, this is what he says about this parable. In my view, of this rabbinic story is a is a complete and ironical inversion of the New Testament. The lowing cow versus the star, the Arab versus the angel of the Lord or the Magi the Jewish peddler versus the Magi, diapers versus gold, frankincense and myrrh, and the murderous mother versus the murderous king. We should look, you should look up this, uh, this story. It is a counter narrative, a paradistic uh, inversion of the New Testament of the Christian claim that this child Jesus, born in Bethlehem in the city of David, was indeed the Messiah. As such, it is of great theological significance, for it undermines the essence of the Christian message by arguing that no, this child, Jesus, is not the Messiah, at least not the Messiah you Christians say lived among us on earth. So you don't blame the rabbis. This is, they're seeing a lot of persecution, and they're trying to uh, counter this and survive uh, as a people. Here's the other example, and this is fascinating. I only found out about this about uh, eight months ago. So, Judaism's Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. Judaism has a Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. Not, uh, I mean, there's two Joseph, Marys, and Jesus, Mary, and Jesus, but uh, this one is, well, I'll, just, I'll say it like this. There's a specific set of traditions that circulated in the centuries after Jesus died. Uh, obviously, about Jesus's, Jesus and his family as a local hero, but then another set of traditions about three figures who flourished in rabbinic literature in Galilee. These are Joseph the Patriarch. Miriam and Joshua. So it's not a coincidence. So what do I mean? How do these? Uh, how does it? What does this look like? By the way, this is well. I'll show you in a minute these pictures. So according to the Hebrew scriptures, Joshua was buried. If you guys remember, in the country of Ephraim, right? His tomb is right there in Ephraim today. You can go see it. But in the centuries after Jesus died, this is a later tradition places joshua's tomb in the arbel valley right there next to the sea of galilee and that's where this is Uh, this top picture is standing on the arbel cliff looking out over the the west and the north uh, shore of galilee where jesus spent most of his time that's where the uh, the tomb is and then this other picture is looking in the opposite direction through the arbel valley what's interesting is that the folklore of these two uh tombs jesus's tomb the joshua and then the, the Hebrew Bible Joshua, is that they had similarities. So both of these had uh, an earthquake and an angel guarding their tomb. we will mention real quick uh, Joseph the patriarch, also buried in the ter- uh, territory of Ephraim, but then a later tradition places him in lower Galilee between Sepphorus and Cana, which is, you can see, just right here. So you've got Nazareth, there's Jonah, Sepphoris and Cana, all right here in Lower Galilee. It's not a coincidence that they're moving these tombs or that these traditions start popping up of Joseph and Jesus or uh, Joshua. The last one is Mary. The, the local tradition places Miriam's well in the city of Galilee. You know, I found this picture actually just today. Probably uh, a local Jewish person uh, with the, their website. You can't see this small text in the middle but it says earthquake epicenter, the exact place of Miriam's well. July 4th through the 9th in 2018. And then there's a tradition. Oh, there's a lot of miracles that had happened there. The the stories that when the Israelites came into the land of Canaan, Miriam's well miraculously moved with them and then sat down in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And so a leper was healed while bathing in the Sea of Galilee when he spotted the, the well. So here is the rabbinic story, or the tradition. If anyone ascends to the top of Mount uh, Yeshimon, he will see a kind of small sev in the Sea of Tiberias, or Sea of Galilee. This is the well of Miriam. Rabbi Jonathan ben Anori says, our rabbis have calculated its position, which is directly opposite the middle gate of the ancient synagogue of Tiberias. So this is important to them, and they want to find out exactly where this um, this tomb is located. Okay, so what about all this? This example, it's not not a coincidence that these traditions started to, to circulate among Jews with these three specific people. And they circulated until the early Middle Ages when Christianity became so powerful in the region that those sort of traditions were stamped out or faded. But you can see how the rabbis are responding to Christianity by taking those local traditions and spinning them or emphasizing. People that were important to them with the same names, same stories. So some of the conclusions that I draw is that number one, the Jesus traditions and the rabbinic traditions. Well, these aren't my conclusions. These are the options for how we can interpret these. These traditions developed simultaneously in relation to each other. Number two, the rabbinic traditions predated Jesus and then influenced the Gospels, you know, the writers. Number three, the Jesus traditions predate the rabbinic traditions and thus influenced how the rabbis presented some of their own traditions. This is what I think uh, is what I'm I'm getting at. This is my option for interpretation. But regardless of any of these, we get the same conclusion. The Jesus traditions were not so radical and hostile to Judaism, to Jewish thinking, that the, the rabbis would have rejected them. Jesus did not reject Judaism, and the rabbis did not reject Jesus, or most of what he taught, as evidenced in how they're... I mean, eventually, they reject Jesus, which is a political move, and they disparage him in the Talmud. But his ideas were not rejected. And I say here, Jesus cannot be divorced from his Jewish world.